Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, that's where we'll be this morning in our text. The title of the message again is, Who Can Forgive Sins? That's a question that is asked explicitly in the text this morning. Who can forgive sins? Think for a moment this morning about this question. What is your greatest need? What is your greatest need? Of all of our needs, which of them is paramount? What need surpasses all other needs? Someone once wrote, If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need is forgiveness. Therefore, God sent us a Savior. Without question, our greatest need is to escape the wrath of God. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us it is a fearful thing. Your translation may say it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Think about this. What is it that sends people to hell? What is it that sends people to hell? You had to answer the question in the margin of your notes there. How, how would you answer? What would you pin? What is it that sends people to hell? Most of us with good theology would say sin. Sin sends people to hell. But let me submit to you, friends, it's not just sin that sends people to hell. It's unforgiven sin that sends people to hell. It is sin without forgiveness that plunges people under the fury of God's wrath to come. And because of that, our greatest need is to be forgiven. Have you been forgiven? Have your sins been paid for in full? Has your debt been paid by Christ on Calvary's hill? Our text this morning begins with another story of healing, but it unexpectedly turns into a story about forgiveness and Jesus' identity as God. Jesus' deity. And so with our greatest need being forgiveness in mind, let me encourage you to stand this morning as we read God's word together. We're continuing right along, systematically preaching through God's word. Our study this morning brings us to Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Mark, penning these words, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins? God alone. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves, say, said to them, 
Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great high God stands forever. You may be seated. If you're taking notes this morning, which I would certainly encourage you to do, your outline follows four movements through the text, four scenes through the text. Movement number one or scene number one is this, delighted crowds. That's who we meet first in our text this morning. Delighted crowds, excited crowds, ecstatic crowds, happy crowds. Let me draw your attention back to verses 1 and 2. Look at your Bible there. When he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. and Many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And here's what he was doing. Jesus was preaching the word to them. Our text last week concluded with Jesus instructing a leper whom he had cleansed, see to it that you say nothing to anyone. Don't, don't tell anyone what I have done for you. There was good reason for that. The reason behind Jesus telling the leper not to go and tell anyone what he had done for him was because Jesus did not want to be prematurely stopped from his mission. And he knew that if the crowds continued to clamor and they continued to grow, that they would try to stop his mission. And Jesus was focused. He was focused, his eyes set like flint to the cross in Jerusalem. He was going there step by step every single day. And so Jesus instructed the, the cleansed leper, see to it that you say nothing to anyone. But unfortunately, we learned last week that that was not the case. Instead, the leper went out and began to freely spread the news. If you let your eyes glance back there to Uh, Chapter 1, verse 45, Mark tells us that the result of the leper's disobedience was that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but instead Jesus was confined to or pushed out to the desolate places. That's the wilderness. Jesus was pushed out of the towns. We noticed last week that there was a glorious gospel picture in our text. Jesus and the leper had traded places. The leper started out in the wilderness and the desolate places, but having been cleansed with Jesus, would have been welcomed back into the community, while Jesus, because the leper disobeyed him, was forced out or thrust out of the city into the desolate places or the wilderness. It was a wonderful, beautiful, glorious picture of substitution. Jesus and the leper traded places. Because of the ministry distraction created by the leper, Jesus has returned home to Capernaum. If you're you're familiar with the area there, Galilee is a region. It was west of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum, small little port city on on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. So so the Sea of Galilee, if you think of a circle here in front of you, to its west is is the, the region of Galilee. Capernaum hanging out up there on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus returns home to. That was kind of home base for Jesus' ministry. 
A lot of his ministry crisscrossed back and forth through Capernaum. Where home base was, or mission control for a lot of Jesus' missionary movement. Presumably, he returns home to Peter's home, returns to Capernaum to Peter's home, where a swelling crowd meets him again. Remember, we saw a great crowd meeting outside of or assembling outside of the home of Peter's mother-in-law's home not too long ago. Now Jesus has returned to Capernaum, presumably to Peter's house this time, and we see another crowd growing outside the door. Many were gathered together so that there was not even room, not even at the door, Mark tells us. Jesus' activity, what he was doing, which is what we find Jesus doing most of the time in his ministry, is he is preaching the word to them. And so the scene that we have here is of a relatively small home that is literally packed shoulder to shoulder with people eager to see and to hear Jesus. You ever been in one of those places uh, where you feel so, so confined? It's not the place that you want to be if you're claustrophobic, but where you're shoulder to shoulder. Maybe you're in a line uh, or you've been at a a venue of some sort where you're just kind of crammed in there. That's the picture that we have here as Jesus is preaching. People packed literally shoulder to shoulder to see and to hear Jesus. Though they'll hate him later, they love him now. At least they love what he is doing for people that they love. It's presumable that the crowd wasn't only composed of those residing in Capernaum, but was also composed of those who had heard of Jesus' return and they had come in from the surrounding towns. Remember, Jesus, word about Jesus has spread. His fame has spread. Word about Jesus has gone viral. And so as Jesus moves from, from city to city, region to region, place to place, it's, it's hard for him to keep his presence under wraps. And people literally come out of the woodwork to see and to hear Jesus. They, they, they bring their sick and infirmed and deranged from all over the place to Jesus to see if he might heal them. Again, they'll hate him later, but they love him now least what he's doing for them. The crowds play an important role in the Gospel of Mark. Mark mentions the crowds who were either around Jesus or followed Jesus some 40 times just in the first 10 chapters of Mark's Gospel. Mark seems to highlight or to shed light on these crowds which follow Jesus as he ministers. But to Jesus, and we noted this last week, swelling crowds were not a sign of ministry success. As a matter of fact, the single most common attribute of the crowds in Mark's gospel is that they obstruct access to Jesus. You want to study kind of a theme through Mark's gospel, just look at the first 10 chapters and look as Mark writes about the crowds. What you'll find more often than not is that the crowds are seen as obstructing access to Jesus. They were eager for a look-see. But Mark never describes the crowds turning to Jesus in faith and repentance like the gospel requires. It's important to note, and this is is important for us to, to internalize and understand here, that being in the crowd is not the same as being a disciple. Being in the crowd is not the same as being a disciple. Being a part of a church, being a member of a church, being on this board or committee, or, or leadership role, or a Sunday school teacher, or, or whatever spiritual influence we may have, it is not the same as being a disciple. Now, our hope and earnest prayer 
Is it all of our leaders and teachers and attenders? That every person filling 12 square uh, inches of, of fabric sitting in here this morning and the pew that you sit on is indeed regenerate, redeemed, adopted. But in a congregation this size, it is inevitable that there are some sitting in here this morning who are just a part of the crowd, but who have never come to Jesus in saving faith and repented, who are not genuine disciples. And we would do well, myself included, to heed Paul's words, to examine ourselves, not to become morbidly introspective. That's, that's the job of the Spirit. Uh, we speak of the Spirit as being the hound dog of heaven. That, that's why the psalmist writes things like this, God, search me and you know me. See if there's any grievous way in me and you lead me in the way everlasting. The encouragement is not to become morbidly introspective in any way, but we would do well to examine ourselves. Does my life exhibit fruits of genuine faith? Does my life exhibit fruit of real repentance, a growing and abiding, though imperfect, walk with the Lord Jesus Christ? Or am I merely content to just sit in the crowd, to be associated with the things of Christ, while not to be connected in vital union to Jesus himself? Being in the crowd is not the same as being a disciple and we see that clearly here in the text. We must never forget the power of unbelief and the depth of man's enmity against God. The crowds in Capernaum hear the most faultless preaching. I mean, what you hear from this pulpit on Sunday mornings is flawed and a frail attempt to preach the glories of God's word. I mean, oftentimes on Sunday mornings, and I'll probably say it again this Sunday, I, to someone in the lobby, I am simply rusty conduit at best through which God's word, because he sees fit and is pleased in some way to use me, uses me. But what these people heard was faultless preaching, the most faultless preaching. They saw it confirmed by the most surprising miracles, and yet many of them remained dead in their trespasses and sins. We need reminding that the same gospel which is the aroma of life to some, is the smell or the stench of death to others. And the same fire that melts wax hardens clay. There are some people who sit under the teaching of God's word and their hearts, by God's grace, are melted like wax. And, it, and there's genuine faith and repentance and then there are some people who come and sit and hear Sunday after Sunday after Sunday whose hearts are just continually hardened like clay. Nothing, in fact, seems to harden a man's heart or a woman's heart so much as to hear the gospel regularly taught and then yet to deliberately dabble in sin and the world. You want a surefire way to a hardened heart? Let yourself sit under the teaching and preaching of the word and then go out and dabble in sin and intermingle yourself in the world. It's a way to harden your heart towards the things of God. The crowd that funneled into Peter's house was large and it was undoubtedly diverse. Packed into the house and spilling out of the front door and into the street were wealthy and poor, healthy and sick, young and old, 
all jockeying for position to hear the one who healed diseases and cast out demons and taught with greater authority than their scribes and Pharisees. The scene was exciting as it was tense. And while Mark's account focuses on the capacity of the crowd, that is the crowd's size, it's interesting to note that Luke focuses on the composition of the crowd. Who was it that was sitting there? Mark tells us it was a large crowd, so large that it spilled out of the house and into the street. But Luke, on the other hand, focuses on who was there, who composed the crowd, who were its attendees. And look who's front and center. You don't need to turn there, but Luke writes this in Luke 5, verse 17. Luke writes, as he, Jesus, was teaching, Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. The religious elite were were in attendance as Jesus is teaching here, presumably in Peter's house. Remember, the scribes and the Pharisees, they they were the doctors of the law, the interpreters of the scripture, the the pastors, so to speak, of the day. The religious elite, the, the, the ones that everyone looked to and said, they've got it all together. If anyone's got it all together, if anyone knows about the things of God, if anyone understands the word of God, it's them. That's who was in attendance here amongst the others. Can you imagine the furrowed eyebrows then knowing that as Jesus stood and preached eyeball to eyeball with the very religious authorities which his teaching was said to have superseded? Can can you imagine the furrowed brows as they looked on at this man? Recently, a young man asked me this question. He said, what was the content, or he asked rather, what was the content uh, of the gospel that Jesus was preaching? Glance back at your Bible there for just a second. Let me take you all the way back to chapter 1. Look at verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So this young man asked, What was the content of Jesus' gospel? What was included in Jesus' preaching? Because that's what we find Jesus doing in the text here again. Jesus is preaching. The question is, was Jesus preaching the cross at this early point in his ministry? I would submit to you that he was. Albeit probably in its bud form, hadn't, hadn't blossomed yet into the glorious flower that it would come to be as Jesus progressed through his life and ministry. As Jesus neared the cross, as, as he each day walked closer and closer to the cross, I think the explicitness of the gospel became clearer and clearer. But I think from the very onset here, Jesus is preaching the gospel, including the cross, at least in its bud form. And that's what he's preaching here in this house. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. However much detail was present in Jesus' gospel early in his message, or early in his ministry, we're not for certain, but we must conclude that there was included in Jesus' gospel presentation sufficient detail for those who heard it to respond in faith and repentance and be genuinely converted. There was enough detail, sufficient detail in what Jesus preached, even early on from the outset, right after his baptism, as his public ministry began, there there was enough information contained in that gospel, one, to condemn everyone without exception, 
and to lead everyone who heard it to genuine faith and repentance and true conversion. But unfortunately, the crowds that oftentimes followed Jesus were excited for all the wrong reasons. They were curious but not convinced. They were happy but not humbled. They were aroused but not repentant. They were delighted to watch and listen to Jesus, but their, their delight was just like the person who goes to the circus. They're there to watch the show, but not to follow and obey the ringmaster. They're very excited about what's going on, but they're not there to follow and obey the ringmaster. The first movement that we see in our text here is that of delighted crowds. Point number two on your outline this morning. Scene number two, determined faith. We move from delighted crowds to determined faith. Look at verses three and four. Mark writes, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the the roof from above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. While other sick and disabled individuals were presumably amongst the crowd as Jesus was teaching here on this day, four men with unbridled determination, with with bulldog tenacity, you might say, unable to get their way to Jesus, unable to finagle their friend through the crowd to Jesus, go to the roof. They scaled the small house in some way, and they began to dig through the roof. Now, here's what you need to know. It was common in Jesus' day for homes to have a stone staircase uh, on the exterior, on on one of the sides of the house, uh, perhaps on the back, but a stone staircase staircase that led to a deck-like roof that was composed of some 18 to 24 inches of tightly compacted dirt, clay, sand, and stone that overlaid wooden beams. The roof of homes oftentimes served as a place to uh, catch some fresh air. It was a place to dry laundry. It was a place to eat a meal. It was a place to sleep sometimes when it was a little bit too balmy in the home. And it was a place oftentimes that was used to go and pray. Peter's home, which again, presumably that's where we're at here, may or may not, we don't know, have had one of these staircases, these stone staircases to the roof. And so it's possible that these men may have climbed the staircase of a neighboring home and then hopped from one roof to the other, from the adjacent house onto the roof of Peter's home here. But getting their friend on the roof of Peter's house wasn't the only obstacle in front of these men. Once on the roof, they'd have to dig a hole through uh, the roof large enough that their friend could be lowered down to Jesus. I mean, this, this wasn't as easy as like removing, uh, you know, the, the, the roof hatch, and, and there he is. I mean, there was some, some digging that went on here. There was determination to get their friend to Jesus. Matter of fact here, the, 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 the literal interpretation of the text is they had to uncover the roof, or they had to unroof the roof to get their friend to Jesus. I think it's safe to say that these four men were resolved to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus, to get him in front of Jesus, no matter the cost. Now, this isn't the thrust of the text here, but there is some fitting application, I think. These four men were doing whatever it took to bring their buddy to Jesus. What a picture of our ministry as fishers of men. 
Do we have a do-whatever-it-takes mentality to bring the lost around us to Jesus? To get them in front of Christ by way of the Word of God, the people of God, and the Spirit of God. One great way for you to expose your lost family and friends to the Word of God, the people of God, and the Spirit of God is to invite them together or to invite them to join you when we gather together in corporate worship. Now, let me make a distinction here. Our philosophy of church is not a seeker-sensitive model. Our philosophy of church is to teach and preach the revealed word of God to believers. But our teaching and our preaching ought to always include, explicitly include, a clear gospel message. In other words, it ought never be said of this gathering, this fellowship of believers here at 2911 Coggy Road, that there's a message preached from this pulpit which does not include a gospel message that the lost who are in attendance can respond to. So we're not gearing everything that we do in corporate worship to the lost, but our message ought to include the gospel explicitly that the lost among us can repent and believe. One great way to expose your lost family members and friends and co-workers and neighbors to the word of God, the people of God, and the spirit of God is to invite them with you as you assemble with us on Sunday mornings in corporate worship. Let me take you back to the text now. Can you imagine the scene here? Put yourself there. Jesus is there preaching the gospel, and all of a sudden, commotion can be heard from the roof. A rustling around can be heard from the roof. Now, whether Jesus continued preaching or he paused at this point, I, I mentioned several weeks back when Jesus was preaching in the synagogue, and, and the, 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 the man with the, with the demon came. It almost seems as if Jesus pauses mid-sentence from his preaching and turns his attention to the demon-possessed man and cast the demon out of him. We don't know what takes place here, whether Jesus continues right along preaching or if he paused, but at some point, the roof overhead begins to crumble and dirt begins to cascade down, and I would tell you that dirt begins to cascade down probably right on the perfectly kept garments of the religious leaders who were presumably sitting in the front row, because that's where we often find them, right? Oftentimes, Jesus takes the religious leaders to task. He tells them, well, you, you want the... The, the front seat at, at, at this gathering. You want to be seen. You, you do what you see, and, and you take care of all your phylacteries and all of your, all of your garments and all of your vestments. You do everything you do to be seen. That's why Jesus takes them to task in, uh, in Matthew 23. He says, you're like a whitewashed tomb. Outwardly, you look great, but inwardly, you're full of dead men's bones. And so, presumably, here were these religious leaders sitting in the front row, and all of a sudden, dirt begins to fall from the roof upon them. And then a shaft of light pierces the room as a small hole is opened in the roof. Eager to get their friend to Jesus, these men continue to dig and to dig and to dig and to dig until the hole is large enough to lower their paralyzed friend down to Jesus. Again, let me just stop and pause and note here. We can only pray that all men were as persistent in bringing the lost to Christ as we see here in the text. Look at Jesus' response. Look at verse 5. Jesus isn't frustrated. He's not annoyed. He's not put off because of the interruption. Quite the contrary. 
Mark writes, and when he, Jesus, saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. This is interesting here. This is very interesting. Here's a man who was paralyzed, unable to bring himself to Jesus, but hoping to be healed. And Jesus leads with these words, son, your sins are forgiven. Such a statement almost seems irrelevant to the immediate situation. What's going on here? What we're witnessing is more than healing. What we're going to witness here in the text is conversion. We're going to witness genuine salvation here in the text. I mean, the man was obviously brought to Jesus for healing from his paralysis, but it's interesting to note that Jesus looks at him alone, not the other four, and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And I I think it's safe to say the paralyzed man wanted to be healed, but more than that, I think he wanted to be forgiven. Now, a survey of commentaries... A survey of biblical commentary seems to leave you with the impression that the paralytic came to Jesus for physical healing, and what he got was spiritual healing. He came for physical healing, what he got was spiritual healing. In other words, Jesus gave the paralyzed man more than he was asking for. But I have a problem with that. I have a problem with that. Two things accompany conversion. What are they, friends? Tell me. Two things precede conversion. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith always precede conversion. Jesus doesn't forgive sins apart from repentance and faith in the gospel. Romans 10, 17, and faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. At some point, this paralyzed man heard the gospel. It's imperative. He had to. Faith comes by hearing. At some point along the way, this paralyzed man heard the gospel. It's possible that this paralyzed man was in attendance in the synagogue when Jesus was preaching and then cast the demon out of the man. Perhaps he was present at the home of Peter's mother-in-law and was there later that same evening as the whole city gathered and brought their sick and oppressed to Jesus. It's possible that he heard the gospel as he was being lowered down to the feet of Jesus. We don't know when he was exposed to the gospel But we do know that while he undoubtedly wanted healing from his physical condition, he also earnestly desired healing from his spiritual condition. And so in this moment, apart from any works, on the basis of his own authority, Jesus justifies the man and forgives him of his sin. Son, your sins are forgiven. The glorious message of Christianity The message that sets Christianity apart from every other worldview or every other religious system under the sun is that Jesus Christ, the eternal, incarnate Son of God, stands ready to forgive sinners. That's the glorious message of Christianity that sets it apart from every other world system or worldview is that Jesus Christ, the second member of the triune Godhead, stands ready to forgive sinners. Has he forgiven you? Paul writes this in Ephesians 1, 7, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And again, in Colossians 1, 14, Paul says, In Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
Just one chapter later in Colossians, he said, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. John, John reminds us, a familiar text to, to all of us probably, in John 1, 19, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus stands ready to forgive sinners on the basis of repentance and faith. And this isn't just a New Testament theme, brothers and sisters. Listen to how God introduces himself in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, here's the phrase, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I mean, David's heart seems to almost bubble over in Psalm 103 when he exclaims, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not one of his benefits. And then he begins to number them. A number of those benefits. And he says, who, here's how he leads, who forgives all your iniquity, heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Let me just pause here. It's not in my notes. Do do we take sufficient time out of the 168 hours that we have in a week, that we are blessed with, that those moments and hours and days are on loan to us? And I'm convicted even when I ask the question, and thank the Lord for all his benefits. Or do we take them for granted? Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Forget not all his benefits. Number one, who forgives all your iniquity. God speaks again through the prophet Isaiah when he says, I, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake, and I will remember your sins no more. Brothers and sisters, forgiveness is glorious, but it is not free. Forgiveness is glorious, but it is not free. Forgiveness is always offered on the basis that another, that is Jesus Christ, pays our sin penalty on our behalf. Free to us to receive, costly to the Savior. A father and daughter were once walking through the grass on a Canadian prairie, And in the distance, they saw a prairie prairie fire, and they realized that that prairie fire would soon engulf them. A lot of fires going on in our world today. If you live out on the West Coast, this is a real imminent threat and a real danger, moment by moment, day by day, being engulfed by flames as, as the fires spread and jump and leap from here to here. The father knew that there was only one way of escape. That is that he would quickly start a fire right where they were and burn a patch of grass. And then as the huge fire drew near, as the prairie fire drew near, they would stand on that section that had already been burned. When the flames did approach them, the girl was terrified, but her father assured her, the flames cannot get to us. We're standing where the fire has already been. Let that settle in for a moment. We're standing where the fire has already been. 
So my question to you this morning, brothers and sisters, friends, are you standing forgiven in Christ? Are you standing where the fire has already been? Are you standing where the wrath has already been displayed? Forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need, it costs the greatest price, and it brings the greatest blessings. Let me say a brief word here concerning affliction this morning because that's, that's part of the text that we're dealing with here. The man who was brought to Jesus was paralyzed. So difficult situations, difficult circumstances. Great is the temptation for all of us to recoil under the burden of difficult circumstances. But affliction and difficulties and trials are oftentimes the means that God uses for our benefit and our blessing. If this man, just track with me here for a second, if this man had never been paralyzed, then he might very well have just kept his sheep somewhere on the hills of Galilee all his life and never been brought to Jesus. He may have just lived content in his lostness doing that which people do, tending his sheep, working his work, going about everyday life and never have been brought to the Lord Jesus Christ. There are probably similar stories in this room this morning. How many of you have learned wisdom as a result of enduring affliction? How many of you have suffered bereavements, which have actually proved later on to be great mercies? How many have suffered loss that has actually later proved to be real gain? How many sicknesses have led to the great physician of souls, sent us running to our Bibles, plucked us out of the world, revealed our foolishness, or taught us to pray? God oftentimes uses difficult situations and circumstances and trials and infirmities and losses and bereavements and illness and disease to draw us to himself. Like David said, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes Friends, listen to me here. Let me, let me have your ears and your attention. We can be very sure that there is a needs be or a purpose for every cross and a wise reason for every trial under the sun. C.S. Lewis, who I am thankful for, don't ascribe to him wholesale, but once said this, pain is God's megaphone. Trial is God's loudspeaker. It's oftentimes what he uses to garner our attention back to himself. Every sickness, sorrow, and loss is a gracious message from God, and it's meant to call us nearer to him. They're meant to remind us that this world is not our home. Scene number three, disbelieving hearts. Disbelieving hearts. We have delighted crowds. We have determined faith. Act number three here is disbelieving hearts. Look at verses six through eight. Mark writes, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Verses six through eight focus the story at least momentarily on the scribes and Pharisees. We have a shift here uh, in, in the drama from the paralyzed man to the scribes and the Pharisees. What began as a heartwarming healing has suddenly become a perilous confrontation over religious authority. Who is this man? 
How does he speak as though he has the authority to forgive sins? You see, the the religious elite who knew the scriptures would have known that God alone can forgive sins. And so as they're looking at Jesus, whom they did not see as their Messiah, come to save them from their sins, look at him and thus think him a blasphemer. The whole point that Jesus is trying to make here is I am God in the flesh. As soon as, the, as soon as Jesus absolved the paralyzed man of his sin, religious red flags started to wave in the minds of the scribes and Pharisees. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, as the self-righteous and status-minded as they often were, would have never dared to claim the ability to forgive sins. Again, that was exclusively, singularly God's prerogative. God alone can forgive sins. And that's why Mark writes here, The scribes and the Pharisees, they were sitting there questioning in their hearts. They didn't even speak it out loud, by the way. We'll get there in just a second. They were questioning in their hearts. They were grumbling in their hearts. They were disbelieving in their hearts. Saying, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Pharisees are murmuring in their hearts, and God hears it all. Let me press pause right there for a second. God hears every word that is never spoken from the mouth, but resides in the heart and in the mind. That's not off-limits space from our God. He's concerned just as much with what we think as what we say. And he hears it and is in attendance in the audience to it all. This is as glorious as it is terrifying. Jesus knew the hearts of the Pharisees, and he knows ours as well. Again, David, speaking of the Lord or speaking of Yahweh in Psalm 139, says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Your thought life, friends, is very, very important. Matter of fact, it's been noted that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And those are thoughts. Are they honoring to him or are they disparaging his nature and his character and his attributes? I would submit to you that every time we complain, this is challenging again for me, every time we complain about anything, we're bringing reproach upon, we're disparaging the nature and the character and the attributes of our sovereign God. Even if it never comes rolling off our lips. You discern my thoughts from afar. The fact that Jesus responded to the thoughts of the Pharisees should have been a dead giveaway that the man in front of them was no ordinary man. The Pharisees were right in the fact that God alone has the authority to forgive sin. They were right that it was blasphemy for any man to claim to possess the authority that belongs to God alone. I mean, the sentence of, or the sentence for blasphemy was incredibly severe. Leviticus 26. If you want some some reading here, Leviticus 26, 
specifically in verse 16, says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. The congregation, all the congregation, shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So Jesus, in his pronouncement, in his pronouncement of divine pardon and forgiveness, just signed his death warrant. This is the very charge that ultimately leads to Jesus' crucifixion. Blasphemers are not able to discern the thoughts and the intentions of another's heart and mind. And so here we see the scribes and Pharisees with disbelieving hearts. Let's close this morning looking at the fourth scene. There is a clear demonstration of deity. Delighted crowds, determined faith, disbelieving hearts, and then a clear demonstration of deity. Turn your attention to verses 9 through 12. Which is easier, Jesus asks. To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And then he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out from before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. It's interesting to note The scribes asked the question in verse 7. Look back at your Bible. They asked this question, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus answers their question in verse 10 when he says, I want you to know that I, the Son of Man, have authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus answers their question. I am the one who has authority, who exercises authority on earth to forgive sins. And how is Jesus going to validate this claim? To have forgiven the paralyzed man's sins. Well, he's going to heal the man of his physical infirmities right before their very eyes. Jesus asks what is almost a a taunting question. He says, which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, from the crowd's perspective, it's easier to say that a man's sins are forgiven. Why? Why? Of those two options, which is easier, to say that your sins are forgiven or to tell this man to rise, get up, and walk? Which is easier? From the crowd's perspective, it's easier to say that your sins are forgiven. The reason behind that is because no one can prove it. It can't be seen. You can't demonstrate that. So Jesus proves his ability to pardon the paralyzed man's sin by healing his paralysis. Jesus' authority to forgive sins is no less effective because it's invisible. But to remove any questions as to the state, the spiritual state of this man's heart, Jesus changes his physical condition, his physical status. And this change can be verified by everyone in attendance. You see, when when, when Jesus caused the, the paralyzed man to walk before the eyes of his critics, they were forced to recognize that his declaration of forgiveness had indeed been effective. If Jesus can do that, which is a miracle that I can see, then he must be able to do that, which is a miracle which I cannot see. That's the whole point here. Jesus goes on in verses 10 and 11 to say, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. I love the word authority, by the way. When he's to, when he's to submit to his authority, to bow before his authority, his word is authoritative. What exists here from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is not suggestion, it's not just good commentary on life, it's authoritative. 
Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins, and so he says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. These two, these two verses here are just bursting forth, blooming with significance. The word know here, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority, the word know there has the idea of a deep-down perception or absolute knowledge. In other words, Jesus' purpose in healing the man's paralysis is that everyone who was there in attendance and observed it would have a knowledge that could not be denied, that you may know that I have authority. Look at this. See this. Undeniable. The word translated power or authority, that you, that you may know the Son of Man has authority or the power on earth to forgive sins, basically means out of being. Jesus has power that is out of his being. His authority is, is resident in him by virtue of his being. There are no tricks. There's no hocus pocus. Just divine power. This is a demonstration of Jesus' deity. What a display before a wondering crowd. Here's the reality. Someday those newly restored limbs, this man's newly restored limbs, they would one day again wither. But just as Jesus said of all those who have been born again, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Again, we see the, the incomparable authority, the incomparable authority of Christ. No angel in heaven, no man on earth, no church council, no minister of any denomination can take away a sinner's a guilty conscience, can take away the load of his guilt and his condemnation and give him peace with God. They can point to the, fount to the fountain. They can declare with authority whose sins God is willing to forgive, those who repent and believe, but they cannot take away sin by their own authority. This is the prerogative of God alone. And it's the prerogative that God has put squarely in the hands of his son, Jesus Christ. Mark concludes, as we land the plane here, Mark concludes this of the crowds. He says, they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Unfortunately, that's as far as their response seems to go. Again, Luke writes in Luke chapter 5, verse 26, he says, they were filled with awe or fear. It's the Greek word phobeo. It's where we get our, our English word phobia. It's a combination of panic, confusion, awe, and reverence, but it falls short of repentance and faith. Here you have this crowd. I mean, they're, they're standing there amazed, starstruck, stammering. But even that is different, wholly different than repentance and faith. Matthew's account says, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. To the crowds, Jesus was just a mere man, not their Messiah. The purpose of Jesus' miracles were to demonstrate his deity, that he was indeed God in the flesh. Healing the paralyzed man physically served to confirm his authority to heal individuals spiritually. Jesus came to save sinners, to be the sacrifice that forgiveness requires. Praise be to God that he's still saving sinners today. He still says to spiritual paralytics, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Has he said it to you? Are you standing this morning where the flames have already been? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you that it is authoritative, that it is sufficient, that it is glorious, that it teaches us, instructs us, uh, that it 
confronts us with the reality of our fallenness, that it convicts us, it rebukes us, it challenges us, it binds us up when we need. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be amongst us this morning ministering your word in a way that I never could. I can stand behind this pulpit and I can preach, thus says the Lord, but you know the hearts of every individual here. And so, Lord, I relinquish my part of the responsibility squarely into your capable hands for you to take the word that has been preached and to minister it to the hearts of every person here exactly how and where it needs to be ministered, that Jesus Christ would, re- would receive all the glory and all the praise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, that's where we'll be this morning in our text. The title of the message again is, Who Can Forgive Sins? That's a question that is asked explicitly in the text this morning. Who can forgive sins? Think for a moment this morning about this question. What is your greatest need? What is your greatest need? Of all of our needs, which of them is paramount? What need surpasses all other needs? Someone once wrote, If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need is forgiveness. Therefore, God sent us a Savior. Without question, our greatest need is to escape the wrath of God. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us it is a fearful thing. Your translation may say it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Think about this. What is it that sends people to hell? What is it that sends people to hell? You had to answer the question in the margin of your notes there. How would you answer? What would you pin? What is it that sends people to hell? Most of us with good theology would say sin. Sin sends people to hell. But let me submit to you, friends, it's not just sin that sends people to hell. It's unforgiven sin that sends people to hell. It is sin without forgiveness that plunges people under the fury of God's wrath to come. And because of that, our greatest need is to be forgiven. Have you been forgiven? Have your sins been paid for in full? Has your debt been paid by Christ on Calvary's hill? Our text this morning begins with another story of healing, but it unexpectedly turns into a story about forgiveness and Jesus' identity as God. Jesus' deity. And so with our greatest need being forgiveness in mind, let me encourage you to stand this morning as we read God's word together. We're continuing right along, systematically preaching through God's word. Our study this morning brings us to Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Mark, pinning these words, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. 
and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great high God stands forever. You may be seated. If you're taking notes this morning, which I would certainly encourage you to do, your outline follows four movements through the text, four scenes through the text. Movement number one, or scene number one, is this, delighted crowds. That's who we meet first in our text this morning. Delighted crowds, excited crowds, ecstatic crowds, happy crowds. Let me draw your attention back to verses 1 and 2. Look at your Bible there. When he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And Here's what he was doing. Jesus was preaching the word to them. Our text last week concluded with Jesus instructing a leper whom he had cleansed, see to it that you say nothing to anyone. Don't don't tell anyone what I have done for you. There was good reason for that. The reason behind Jesus telling the leper not to go and tell anyone what he had done for him was because Jesus did not want to be prematurely stopped from his mission. And he knew that if the crowds continued to clamor and they continued to grow, that they would try to stop his mission. And Jesus was focused. He was focused. His eyes set like flint to the cross in Jerusalem. He was going there step by step every single day. So Jesus instructed the, the cleansed leper, see to it that you say nothing to anyone. But unfortunately, we learned last week that that was not the case. Instead, the leper went out and began to freely spread the news. If you let your eyes glance back there to uh, chapter 1, verse 45, Mark tells us that the result of the leper's disobedience was that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but instead Jesus was confined to or pushed out to the desolate places. That's the wilderness. Jesus was pushed out of the towns. We noticed last week that there was a glorious gospel picture in our text. Jesus and the leper had traded places. The leper started out in the wilderness and the desolate places, but having been cleansed with Jesus, would have been welcomed back into the community, while Jesus, because the leper disobeyed him, was forced out or thrust out of the city 
into the desolate places or the wilderness. It was a wonderful, beautiful, glorious picture of substitution. Jesus and the leper traded places. Because of the ministry distraction created by the leper, Jesus has returned home to Capernaum. If you're, if you're familiar with the area there, Galilee is a region. Okay? It's, it was west of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum, small little port city on, on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. So, so the Sea of Galilee, if you think of a circle here in front of you, to its west is, is the, the region of Galilee. Capernaum hanging out up there on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus returns home to. That was kind of home base for Jesus' ministry. A lot of his ministry crisscrossed back and forth through Capernaum. Where home base was, or mission control for a lot of Jesus' missionary movement. Presumably, he returns home to Peter's home, returns to Capernaum to Peter's home, where a swelling crowd meets him again. Remember, we saw a great crowd meeting outside of or assembling outside of the home of Peter's mother-in-law's home not too long ago. Now Jesus has returned to Capernaum, presumably to Peter's house this time, and we see another crowd growing outside the door. Many were gathered together so that there was not even room, not even at the door, Mark tells us. Jesus' activity, what he was doing, which is what we find Jesus doing most of the time in his ministry, is he is preaching the word to them. And so the scene that we have here is of a relatively small home that is literally packed shoulder to shoulder with people eager to see and to hear Jesus. You ever been in one of those places uh, where you feel so, so confined? It's not the place that you want to be if you're claustrophobic, but where you're shoulder to shoulder. Maybe you're in a line uh, or you've been at a, a venue of some sort where you're just kind of crammed in there. That's the picture that we have here as Jesus is preaching. People packed literally shoulder to shoulder to see and to hear Jesus. Though they'll hate him later, they love him now. At least they love what he is doing for people that they love. It's presumable that the crowd wasn't only composed of those residing in Capernaum, but was also composed of those who had heard of Jesus' return and they had come in from the surrounding towns. Remember, Jesus, word about Jesus has spread. His fame has spread. Word about Jesus has gone viral. And so as Jesus moves from, from city to city, region to region, place to place, it's, it's hard for him to keep his presence under wraps. And people literally come out of the woodwork to see and to hear Jesus. They, they, they bring their sick and infirmed and deranged from all over the place to Jesus to see if he might heal them. Again, they'll hate him later, but they love him now at least what he's doing for them. The crowds play an important role in the Gospel of Mark. Mark mentions the crowds who were either around Jesus or followed Jesus some 40 times just in the first 10 chapters of Mark's Gospel. Mark seems to highlight or to shed light on these crowds which follow Jesus as he ministers. But to Jesus, and we noted this last week, swelling crowds were not a sign of ministry success. As a matter of fact, the single most common attribute of the crowds in Mark's gospel is that they obstruct access to Jesus. You want to study kind of a theme through Mark's gospel, just look at the first 10 chapters and look as Mark writes about the crowds. What you'll find more often than not is that the crowds are seen as obstructing access to Jesus. 
They were eager for a look-see. But Mark never describes the crowds turning to Jesus in faith and repentance like the gospel requires. It's important to note, and this is, this is important for us to, to internalize and understand here, that being in the crowd is not the same as being a disciple. Being in the crowd is not the same as being a disciple. Being a part of a church, being a member of a church, being on this board or committee or, or leadership role or a Sunday school teacher or, or whatever spiritual influence we may have, it is not the same as being a disciple. Now, our hope and earnest prayer is that all of our leaders and teachers and attenders, that every person filling 12 square uh, inches of, of fabric sitting in here this morning and the pew that you sit on is indeed regenerate, redeemed, adopted. But in a congregation this size, it is inevitable that there are some sitting in here this morning who are just a part of the crowd, but who have never come to Jesus in saving faith and repentance, who are not genuine disciples. And we would do well, myself included, to heed Paul's words, to examine ourselves, not to become morbidly introspective. That's, that's the job of the Spirit. Uh, we speak of the Spirit as being the hound dog of heaven. That, that's why the psalmist writes things like this, God, search me and you know me. See if there's any grievous way in me and you lead me in the way everlasting. The encouragement is not to become morbidly introspective in any way, but we would do well to examine ourselves. Does my life exhibit fruits of genuine faith? Does my life exhibit fruit of real repentance, a growing and abiding, though imperfect, walk with the Lord Jesus Christ? Or am I merely content to just sit in the crowd, to be associated with the things of Christ, while not to be connected in vital union to Jesus himself? Being in the crowd is not the same as being a disciple. And we see that clearly here in the text. We must never forget the power of unbelief and the depth of man's enmity against God. The crowds in Capernaum hear the most faultless preaching. I mean, what you hear from this pulpit on Sunday mornings is flawed and a frail attempt to preach the glories of God's word. I mean, oftentimes on Sunday mornings, and I'll probably say it again this Sunday, I, to someone in the lobby, I am simply rusty conduit at best through which God's word, because he sees fit and is pleased in some way to use me, uses me. But what these people heard was faultless preaching, the most faultless preaching. They saw it confirmed by the most surprising miracles, and yet many of them remained dead in their trespasses and sins. We need reminding that the same gospel, which is the aroma of life to some, is the smell or the stench of death to others, and the same fire that melts wax hardens clay. There are some people who sit under the teaching of God's word and their hearts, by God's grace, are melted like wax. And, it, and there's genuine faith and repentance. And then there are some people who come and sit and hear Sunday after Sunday after Sunday whose hearts are just continually hardened like clay. Nothing, in fact, seems to harden a man's heart or a woman's heart so much as to hear the gospel regularly taught and then yet to deliberately dabble in sin and the world. 
You want a surefire way to a hardened heart? Let yourself sit under the teaching and preaching of the word and then go out and dabble in sin and intermingle yourself in the world. It's a way to harden your heart towards the things of God. The crowd that funneled into Peter's house was large and it was undoubtedly diverse. Packed into the house and spilling out of the front door and into the street were wealthy and poor, healthy and sick, young and old, all jockeying for position to hear the one who healed diseases and cast out demons and taught with greater authority than their scribes and Pharisees. The scene was exciting as it was tense. And while Mark's account focuses on the capacity of the crowd, that is the crowd's size, it's interesting to note that Luke focuses on the composition of the crowd. Who was it that was sitting there? Mark tells us it was a large crowd, so large that it spilled out of the house and into the street. But Luke, on the other hand, focuses on who was there, who composed the crowd, who were its attendees. And look who's front and center. You don't need to turn there, but Luke writes this in Luke 5, verse 17. Luke writes, as he, Jesus, was teaching, Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. The religious elite were, were in attendance as Jesus is teaching here, presumably in Peter's house. Remember, the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they were the doctors of the law, the interpreters of the scripture, the, the, the pastors, so to speak, of the day, the religious elite. The, the, the ones that everyone looked to and said, they've got it all together. If anyone's got it all together, if anyone knows about the things of God, if anyone understands the word of God, it's them. That's who was in attendance here amongst the others. Can you imagine the furrowed eyebrows then knowing that as Jesus stood and preached eyeball to eyeball with the very religious authorities which his teaching was said to have superseded? Can you imagine the furrowed brows as they looked on at this man? Recently, a young man asked me this question. He said, what was the content, or he asked rather, what was the content that, uh, of the gospel that Jesus was preaching? Glance back at your Bible there for just a second. Let me take you all the way back to chapter 1. Look at verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. So this young man asked, what was the content of Jesus' gospel? What was included in Jesus' preaching? Because that's what we find Jesus doing in the text here again. Jesus is preaching. The question is, was Jesus preaching the cross at this early point in his ministry? I would submit to you that he was albeit probably in its bud form, hadn't, hadn't blossomed yet into the glorious flower that it would come to be as Jesus progressed through his life and ministry, as Jesus neared the cross, as, as he each day walked closer and closer to the cross. I think the explicitness of the gospel became clearer and clearer. But I think from the very onset here, Jesus is preaching the gospel, including the cross, at least in its bud form. That's what he's preaching here in this house. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. However much detail was present in Jesus' gospel early in his message, or early in his ministry, 
We're not for certain, but we must conclude that there was included in Jesus' gospel presentation sufficient detail for those who heard it to respond in faith and repentance and be genuinely converted. There was enough detail, sufficient detail in what Jesus preached, even early on from the outset, right after his baptism, as his public ministry began, there there was enough information contained in that gospel, one, to condemn everyone without exception, and to lead everyone who heard it to genuine faith and repentance and true conversion. But unfortunately, the crowds that oftentimes followed Jesus were excited for all the wrong reasons. They were curious, but not convinced. They were happy, but not humbled. They were aroused, but not repentant. They were delighted to watch and listen to Jesus, but their their delight was just like the person who goes to the circus. They're there to watch the show, but not to follow and obey the ringmaster. They're very excited about what's going on, but they're not there to follow and obey the ringmaster. The first movement that we see in our text here is that of delighted crowds. Point number two on your outline this morning. Scene number two, determined faith. We move from delighted crowds to determined faith. Look at verses three and four. Mark writes, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the the roof from above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. While other sick and disabled individuals were presumably amongst the crowd as Jesus was teaching here on this day, four men with unbridled determination, with, with bulldog tenacity, you might say, unable to get their way, to Jesus, unable to finagle their friend through the crowd to Jesus, go to the roof. They scaled the small house in some way, and they began to dig through the roof. Now, here's what you need to know. It was common in Jesus' day for homes to have a stone staircase uh, on the exterior, on on one of the sides of the house, uh, perhaps on the back, but a stone staircase staircase that led to a deck-like Uh, roof that was composed of some 18 to 24 inches of tightly compacted dirt, clay, sand, and stone that overlaid wooden beams. The roof of homes oftentimes served as a place to uh, catch some fresh air. It was a place to dry laundry. It was a place to eat a meal. It was a place to sleep sometimes when it was a little bit too balmy in the home. And it was a place oftentimes that was used to go and pray. Peter's home which again, presumably that's what we're at here, may or may not, we don't know, have had one of these staircases, these stone staircases to the roof. And so it's possible that these men may have climbed the staircase of a neighboring home and then hopped from one roof to the other, from the adjacent house onto the roof of Peter's home here. But getting their friend on the roof of Peter's house wasn't the only obstacle in front of these men. Once on the roof, they'd have to dig a hole through uh, the roof, large enough that their friend could be lowered down to Jesus. I mean, this, this wasn't as easy as like removing, uh, you know, the, the, the roof hatch, and, and there he is. I mean, there was some, some digging that went on here. There was determination to get their friend to Jesus. As a matter of fact here, the, 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 the literal interpretation of the text is they had to uncover the roof, or they had to unroof the roof 
to get their friend to Jesus. I think it's safe to say that these four men were resolved to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus, to get him in front of Jesus, no matter the cost. Now, this isn't the thrust of the text here, but there is some fitting application, I think. These four men were doing whatever it took to bring their buddy to Jesus. What a picture of our ministry as fishers of men. Do we have a do-whatever-it-takes mentality to bring the lost around us to Jesus? To get them in front of Christ by way of the Word of God, the people of God, and the Spirit of God. One great way for you to expose your lost family and friends to the Word of God, the people of God, and the Spirit of God is to invite them together or to invite them to join you when we gather together in corporate worship. Now, let me make a distinction here. Our philosophy of church is not a seeker-sensitive model. Our philosophy of church is to teach and preach the revealed word of God to believers. But our teaching and our preaching ought to always include, explicitly include, a clear gospel message. In other words, it ought never be said of this gathering, this fellowship of believers here at 2911 Coggy Road, that there's a message preached from this pulpit which does not include a gospel message that the lost who are in attendance can respond to. So we're not gearing everything that we do in corporate worship to the lost, but our message ought to include the gospel explicitly that the lost among us can repent and believe. One great way to expose your lost family members and friends and coworkers and neighbors to the word of God, the people of God, and the spirit of God is to invite them with you as you assemble with us on Sunday mornings in corporate worship. Let me take you back to the text now. Can you imagine the scene here? Put yourself there. Jesus is there preaching the gospel, and all of a sudden, commotion can be heard from the roof. A rustling around can be heard from the roof. Now, whether Jesus continued preaching or he paused at this point, I, I mentioned several weeks back when Jesus was preaching in the synagogue, and, and the, 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 the man with the, with the demon came. It almost seems as if Jesus pauses mid-sentence from his preaching and turns his attention to the demon-possessed man and casts the demon out of him. We don't know what takes place here, whether Jesus continues right along preaching or if he paused. But at some point, the roof overhead begins to crumble and dirt begins to cascade down. And I would tell you that dirt begins to cascade down probably right on the perfectly kept garments of the religious leaders who were presumably sitting in the front row. Because that's where we often find them, right? Oftentimes, Jesus takes the religious leaders to task. He tells them, well, you, you want the, the, the front seat at, at, at this gathering. You want to be seen, you, you do what you see, and, and you take care of all your phylacteries and all of your, all of your garments and all your vestments. You do everything you do to be seen. That's why Jesus takes them to task in, uh, in Matthew 23. He says, you're like a whitewashed tomb. Outwardly, you look great, but inwardly, you're full of dead men's bones. And so, presumably, here were these religious leaders sitting in the front row, and all of a sudden, dirt begins to fall from the roof. 
upon them. And then a shaft of light pierces the room as a small hole is opened in the roof. Eager to get their friend to Jesus, these men continue to dig and to dig and to dig and to dig until the hole is large enough to lower their paralyzed friend down to Jesus. Again, let me just stop and pause and note here. We can only pray that all men were as persistent in bringing the lost to Christ as we see here in the text. Look at Jesus' response. Look at verse 5. Jesus isn't frustrated. He's not annoyed. He's not put off because of the interruption. Quite the contrary. Mark writes, And when he, Jesus, saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. This is interesting here. It's very interesting. Here's a man who was paralyzed, unable to bring himself to Jesus, but hoping to be healed. And Jesus leads with these words, Son, your sins are forgiven. Such a statement almost seems irrelevant to the immediate situation. What's going on here? What we're witnessing is more than healing. What we're going to witness here in the text is conversion. We're going to witness genuine salvation here in the text. I mean, the man was obviously brought to Jesus for healing from his paralysis, but it's interesting to note that Jesus looks at him alone, not the other four, and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And I, I think it's safe to say the paralyzed man wanted to be healed, but more than that, I think he wanted to be forgiven. Now, a survey of commentaries... A survey of biblical commentary seems to leave you with the impression that the paralytic came to Jesus for physical healing, and what he got was spiritual healing. He came for physical healing, what he got was spiritual healing. In other words, Jesus gave the paralyzed man more than he was asking for. But I have a problem with that. I have a problem with that. Two things accompany conversion. What are they, friends? Tell me. Two things precede conversion. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith always precede conversion. Jesus doesn't forgive sins apart from repentance and faith in the gospel. Romans 10, 17, and faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. At some point, this paralyzed man heard the gospel. It's imperative. He had to. Faith comes by hearing. At some point along the way, this paralyzed man heard the gospel. It's possible that this paralyzed man was in attendance in the synagogue when Jesus was preaching and then cast the demon out of the man. Perhaps he was present at the home of Peter's mother-in-law and was there later that same evening as the whole city gathered and brought their sick and oppressed to Jesus. It's possible that he heard the gospel as he was being lowered down to the feet of Jesus. We don't know when he was exposed to the gospel But we do know that while he undoubtedly wanted healing from his physical condition, he also earnestly desired healing from his spiritual condition. And so in this moment, apart from any works, on the basis of his own authority, Jesus justifies the man and forgives him of his sin. Son, your sins are forgiven. The glorious message of Christianity the message that sets Christianity apart from every other worldview or every other religious system under the sun is that Jesus Christ, the eternal, incarnate Son of God, stands ready to forgive sinners. 
That's the glorious message of Christianity that sets it apart from every other world system or worldview is that Jesus Christ, the second member of the triune Godhead, stands ready to forgive sinners. Has he forgiven you? Paul writes this in Ephesians 1.7, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And again, in Colossians 1.14, Paul says, In Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Just one chapter later in Colossians, he said, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. John, John reminds us, a familiar text to, to all of us probably, in John 1.19, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus stands ready to forgive sinners on the basis of repentance and faith. And this isn't just a New Testament theme, brothers and sisters. Listen to how God introduces himself in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, here's the phrase, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I mean, David's heart seems to almost bubble over in Psalm 103 when he exclaims, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not one of his benefits. And then he begins to number them. The number of those benefits. And he says, who, here's how he leads, who forgives all your iniquity, heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Let me, let me just pause here. It's not in my notes. Do, do we take sufficient time out of the 168 hours that we have in a week that we are blessed with that those moments and hours and days are on loan to us? And I'm convicted even when I ask the question. I thank the Lord for all his benefits. Or do we take them for granted? Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Forget not all his benefits. Number one, who forgives all your iniquity. God speaks again through the prophet Isaiah when he says, I, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake, and I will remember your sins no more. Brothers and sisters, forgiveness is glorious, but it is not free. Forgiveness is glorious, but it is not free. Forgiveness is always offered on the basis that another, that is Jesus Christ, pays our sin penalty on our behalf. Free to us to receive, costly to the Savior. A father and daughter were once walking through the grass on a Canadian prairie, and in the distance, they saw a prairie, fi prairie fire, and they realized that that prairie fire would soon engulf them. A lot of fires going on in our world today. If you live out on the West Coast, this is a real imminent threat and a real danger, moment by moment, day by day, being engulfed by flames as, as the fires spread and jump and leap from here to here. The father knew that there was only one way of escape. 
That is that he would quickly start a fire right where they were and burn a patch of grass. And then as the huge fire drew near, as the prairie fire drew near, they would stand on that section that had already been burned. When the flames did approach them, the girl was terrified, but her father assured her, the flames cannot get to us. We're standing where the fire has already been. Let that settle in for a moment. We're standing where the fire has already been. So my question to you this morning, brothers and sisters, friends, are you standing forgiven in Christ? Are you standing where the fire has already been? Are you standing where the wrath has already been displayed? Forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need, it costs the greatest price, and it brings the greatest blessings. Let me say a brief word here concerning affliction this morning because that's, that's part of the text that we're dealing with here. The man who was brought to Jesus was paralyzed. It's a difficult situation, difficult circumstances. Great is the temptation for all of us to recoil under the burden of difficult circumstances. But affliction and difficulties and trials are oftentimes the means that God uses for our benefit and our blessing. If this man, just track with me here for a second, if this man had never been paralyzed, then he might very well have just kept his sheep somewhere on the hills of Galilee all his life and never been brought to Jesus. He may have just lived content in his lostness doing that which people do, tending his sheep, working his work, going about everyday life and never have been brought to the Lord Jesus Christ. There are probably similar stories in this room this morning. How many of you have learned wisdom as a result of enduring affliction? How many of you have suffered bereavements, which have actually proved later on to be great mercies? How many have suffered loss that has actually later proved to be real gain? How many sicknesses have led to the great physician of souls, sent us running to our Bibles, plucked us out of the world, revealed our foolishness, or taught us to pray? God oftentimes uses difficult situations and circumstances and trials and infirmities and losses and bereavements and illness and disease to draw us to himself. Like David said, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes Friends, listen to me here. Let me, let me have your ears and your attention. We can be very sure that there is a needs be or a purpose for every cross and a wise reason for every trial under the sun. C.S. Lewis, who I am thankful for, don't ascribe to him wholesale, but once said this, pain is God's megaphone. Trial is is God's loudspeaker. It's oftentimes what he uses to garner our attention back to himself. Every sickness, sorrow, and loss is a gracious message from God, and it's meant to call us nearer to him. They're meant to remind us that this world is not our home. Scene number three, disbelieving hearts. Disbelieving hearts. We have delighted crowds. We have determined faith. Act number three here is disbelieving hearts. Look at verses six through eight. Mark writes, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Verses 6 through 8 focus the story, at least momentarily, on the scribes and Pharisees. We have a shift here uh, in, in the drama from the paralyzed man to the scribes and the Pharisees. What began as a heartwarming healing has suddenly become a perilous confrontation over religious authority. Who is this man? How does he speak as though he has the authority to forgive sins? You see, the, the religious elite who knew the scriptures would have known that God alone can forgive sins. And so as they're looking at Jesus, whom they did not see as their Messiah, come to save them from their sins, look at him, and thus think him a blasphemer. The whole point that Jesus is trying to make here is, I am God in the flesh. As soon as, the, as, soon as Jesus absolved the paralyzed man of his sin... Religious red flags started to wave in the minds of the scribes and Pharisees. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, as the self-righteous and status-minded as they often were, would have never dared to claim the ability to forgive sins. Again, that was exclusively, singularly, God's prerogative. God alone can forgive sins. And that's why Mark writes here. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were sitting there questioning in their hearts. They didn't even speak it out loud, by the way. We'll get there in just a second. They were questioning in their hearts. They were grumbling in their hearts. They were disbelieving in their hearts. Saying, why does this man speak like that? He's blasphemed. Pharisees are murmuring in their hearts, and God hears it all. Let me press pause right there for a second. God hears every word that is never spoken from the mouth, but resides in the heart and in the mind. That's not off-limits space from our God. He's concerned just as much with what we think as what we say. And he hears it and is in attendance in the audience to it all. This is as glorious as it is terrifying. Jesus knew the hearts of the Pharisees, and he knows ours as well. Again, David, speaking of the Lord or speaking of Yahweh in Psalm 139, says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Your thought life, friends, is very, very important. Matter of fact, it's been noted that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And those are thoughts. Are they honoring to him or are they disparaging his nature and his character and his attributes? I would submit to you that every time we complain, this is challenging again for me, every time we complain about anything, we're bringing reproach upon, we're disparaging the nature and the character and the attributes of our sovereign God. Even if it never comes rolling off our lips. You discern my thoughts from afar. The fact that Jesus responded to the thoughts of the Pharisees should have been a dead giveaway 
But the man in front of them was no ordinary man. The Pharisees were right in the fact that God alone has the authority to forgive sin. They were right that it was blasphemy for any man to claim to possess the authority that belongs to God alone. I mean, the sentence, of, or the sentence for blasphemy was incredibly severe. Le- Leviticus 26. If you want some, some reading here, Leviticus 26, specifically in verse 16, says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. The congregation, all the congregation, shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So Jesus, in his pronouncement, in his pronouncement of divine pardon and forgiveness, just signed his death warrant. This is the very charge that ultimately leads to Jesus' crucifixion. Blasphemers are not able to discern the thoughts and the intentions of another's heart and mind. And so here we see the scribes and Pharisees with disbelieving hearts. Let's close this morning looking at the fourth scene. There is a clear demonstration of deity. Delighted crowds, determined faith, disbelieving hearts, and then a clear demonstration of deity. Turn your attention to verses 9 through 12. Which is easier, Jesus asks. To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And then he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out from before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. It's interesting to note that the scribes asked the question in verse 7. Look back at your Bible. They asked this question, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus answers their question in verse 10 when he says, I want you to know that I, the Son of Man, have authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus answers their question. I am the one who has authority, who exercises authority on earth to forgive sins. And how is Jesus going to validate this claim? To have forgiven the paralyzed man's sins. Well, he's going to heal the man of his physical infirmities right before their very eyes. Jesus asks what is almost a a taunting question. He says, which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. And from the crowd's perspective, it's easier to say that a man's sins are forgiven. Why? Why? Of those two options, which is easier, to say that your sins are forgiven or to tell this man to rise, get up, and walk? Which is easier? From the crowd's perspective, it's easier to say that your sins are forgiven. The reason behind that is because no one can prove it. It can't be seen. You can't demonstrate that. So Jesus proves his ability to pardon the paralyzed man's sin by healing his paralysis. Jesus' authority to forgive sins is no less effective because it's invisible. But to remove any questions as to the state, the spiritual state of this man's heart, Jesus changes his physical condition, his physical status. And this change can be verified by everyone in attendance. You see, when when, when Jesus caused the, the paralyzed man to walk before the eyes of his critics, they were forced to recognize that his declaration of forgiveness had indeed been effective. If Jesus can do that, which is a miracle that I can see, then he must be able to do that, which is a miracle which I cannot see. That's the whole point here. 
Jesus goes on in verses 10 and 11 to say, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. I love the word authority, by the way. We need to submit to his authority, to bow before his authority. His word is authoritative. What exists here from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is not suggestion. It's not just good commentary on life. It's authoritative. Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins, and so he says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. These two, these two verses here are just bursting forth, blooming with significance. The word know here, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority, the word know there has the idea of a deep-down perception or absolute knowledge. In other words, Jesus' purpose in healing the man's paralysis is that everyone who was there in attendance and observed it, would have a knowledge that could not be denied. That you may know that I have authority. Look at this. See this. Undeniable. The word translated power or authority, that you, that you may know the Son of Man has authority or the power on earth to forgive sins, basically means out of being. Jesus has power that is out of his being. His authority is is resident in him by virtue of his being. There are no tricks. There's no hocus pocus. Just divine power. This is a demonstration of Jesus' deity. What a display before a wondering crowd. Here's the reality. Someday those newly restored limbs, this man's newly restored limbs, they would one day again wither. But just as Jesus said of all those who have been born again, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Again, we see the the incomparable authority, the incomparable authority of Christ. No angel in heaven, no man on earth, no church council, no minister of any denomination can take away a sinner's guilty conscience, can take away the load of his guilt and his condemnation and give him peace with God. They can point to the the fountain. They can declare with authority whose sins God is willing to forgive, those who repent and believe, but they cannot take away sin by their own authority. This is the prerogative of God alone. And it's the prerogative that God has put squarely in the hands of his son, Jesus Christ. Mark concludes, as we land the plane here, Mark concludes this of the crowds. He says, they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Unfortunately, that's as far as their response seems to go. Again, Luke writes in Luke chapter 5, verse 26, he says, they were filled with awe or fear. It's the Greek word phobeo. It's where we get our our English word phobia. It's a combination of panic, confusion, awe, and reverence, but it falls short of repentance and faith. Here you have this crowd. I mean, they're they're standing there amazed, starstruck, stammering. But even that is different, wholly different than repentance and faith. Matthew's account says, When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. To the crowds, Jesus was just a mere man, not their Messiah. The purpose of Jesus' miracles were to demonstrate his deity, that he was indeed God in the flesh. Healing the paralyzed man physically served to confirm his authority to heal individuals spiritually. Jesus came to save sinners, to be the sacrifice that forgiveness requires. 
Praise be to God that he's still saving sinners today. He still says to spiritual paralytics, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Has he said it to you? Are you standing this morning where the flames have already been? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you that it is authoritative, that it is sufficient, that it is glorious, that it teaches us, instructs us, uh, that it confronts us with the reality of our fallenness, uh, that it convicts us, it rebukes us, it challenges us, it binds us up when we need. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be amongst us this morning, ministering your word in a way that I never could. I can stand behind this pulpit and I can preach, thus says the Lord, but you know the hearts of every individual here. And so, Lord, I relinquish my part of the responsibility squarely into your capable hands for you to take the word that has been preached and to minister it to the hearts of every person here exactly how and where it needs to be ministered, that Jesus Christ would, re- would receive all the glory and all the praise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.